You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Great. Please be seated. Now we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 5 and the Beatitudes, but I had issued a challenge uh, to some of the younger people. If uh, you could memorize the whole thing, I said I might give you a prize. And uh, some of you memorized it that very night, or so you said, but I said, no, no, no. Memory has got to last a little bit longer than just one night. So uh, I'm going to give you tonight and also next week as well. And uh, I, when I was away last week uh, preaching in Sterling, Craig sent me a uh, video of you quoting it, some of you quoting it in, uh, through in the spy group. So I was very, very impressed. Would, uh, anyone, has anyone learned it? Would you like to quote it? Anyone know it? Who knows it? Or I'm going to give you until next week. Ailsa, you know it, don't you? Yeah, you do. I thought you would. Who else, who else learned it? I think Fraser did at some point. He's, is, he, is he here? Fraser, did you learn it? Okay. Will you, I'm not sure, depending on how long this goes on to, um, just now, and you may say, well, surely I should know. I don't actually. Uh, I've got to go to the hospital afterwards. So if I don't get you at the end, I'm going to get both of you next week, all right? And anyone else who's learned it as well. But I do trust you. I'm not going to ask you to come up to the front and say it. Don't worry. Um, but you can tell me uh, maybe next week, all right? So, and here's the thing. If I had to say them from memory, I couldn't. So I have to apologize for that. I'm going to have to read it. Matthew chapter 5. And that doesn't just go for Fraser and Ailsa, anyone else who's learned them uh, as well. And let's read from uh, verse 1, page 968. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will uh, be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, we're going to look at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And it's one of these things that you kind of know, and yet we don't know. And understanding what Jesus is saying and what he's not saying uh, are very important. And the key here to this is that these Beatitudes... There's actually a logical sequence to them. It's just like Jonathan was talking about design. There's a design here. It's not the whole Sermon on the Mount. It's not just a a series of random blessed thoughts from Jesus. It is uh, something that there is an order to it. And this first part, this first one is really, really important. And here's why. This first one tells us that we need to be empty before we can be filled. And that's really crucial. You may think, well, that's obvious, isn't it? Well, no, it's not obvious. 
because you get a lot of people who go, I don't like the God of the Old Testament. I don't like things I read in Paul. But Jesus, I like the Jesus of the New Testament and his radical teaching. And especially, I like the Sermon on the Mount. I'm a Sermon on the Mount Christian. And when they say that, they, they, they imply, and very often they mean, that the Sermon on the Mount tells us to do something and we can go and do it. But actually, the Sermon on the Mount doesn't do that. And you just do not get the Beatitudes and you don't get Christianity. You don't get what Jesus is teaching if you think, here's a list of things. Go out, help the poor. Go out, be kind to people. Go out and don't commit adultery and so on. And if you just do all these things, love your neighbor, pray the Lord's Prayer, then that's it. And we can go and do them. This first one is the foundation of all the others because it says we have to be poor in spirit, first of all. And that means it's not something that we can do. If we think, well, here's a list of things that I can go and do, inevitably that results in some kind of pride. So we're going to look at what it means to be poor in spirit and uh, how that happens. And I want to do it a slightly uh, different way. I want to think, first of all, about what it is to be rich in spirit. If you say, well, I'm rich in spirit, I'm, I'm spiritually rich, or what would that mean? For some people, it would mean that they were very confident. For some people, it would mean that they've got everything they want, that when they go home tonight, they're going to go home, and they've got a nice warm house, uh, they've got nice food waiting for them, nice drink, they've got a nice family, and Everything is going really well for them. All these good things. And so they're contented and satisfied and happy. Some people think rich in spirit is to be constantly you know, joyful. And just things are going great. You're the kind of person who's effervescent and is always wanting to sing. You don't just sing in the shower. Uh, you sing everywhere goes out, it's pouring rain, you're singing in the rain. You, you don't, you know, you're, but they think that's what it means to be rich in spirit. Well, I want to suggest something to you. It's a, uh, a Puritan commonplace, a Puritan phrase that says this, God never made a soul so small that the whole world would satisfy it. God never made a soul so small that the whole world would satisfy it. Jesus taught in Luke 12:15, watch out, he said, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 31, those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them, for this world in its present form is passing away. Maybe you and I are rich in different ways. Maybe we are Rich in terms of the money that we have. Maybe we're rich in terms of our health. We're certainly rich enough to be able to be here. Maybe we're rich in terms of our relationships. There are so many blessings from God that we can give thanks for. But all the things that we consider to be rich and that we work for, they all disappear. They all go. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Poor in spirit. How can you be poor in spirit? 
It, it is actually hard to be that when you're wealthy. The Bible is not opposed to wealth. And wealth is a gift from God. But it is, you, you will find that the more wealth people have, people say the more education people have, the less likely they are to be Christians. Unless, um, I, don't, I don't mean this in a bad way, they mean it in a bad way, unless you're like Jonathan and a bit of a freak. You know, you've, you've studied a lot and you've got a lot and so on, but well... That just goes to prove the exception that proves the rule. They say the more educated you are, the more likely uh, you are not to be a believer. I don't think that's true. I think what's more likely to be true is the more affluent of a society you live in, the less likely you are to believe in God. And that's not because of intelligence. That's because of self-sufficiency. Why do I need God? Why would I give thanks for food when I provided it myself? I can look after. I can provide for my family. I can do everything. So when you are wealthy, it's much harder to be poor in spirit. Now, I have met wealthy people who are poor in spirit. And they are abs- it's just wonderful. It's just incredible to see that. But you see others who are just, just so vain in so many ways. Um, I don't know if you ever watch things like the Graham Norton show on television. Uh, he's a very gifted Presenter, but one of the things that saddens me about that kind of program is it's the it's the famous and usually the rich and famous who who come on, and some are very pleasant and amusing, but often what comes across is just an arrogance and a pride and a haughtiness, and that's the very opposite of what is meant here. Let me I've got to put a couple of qualifications in here. This is not saying that physical poverty is a means to being more spiritual. So you could sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. But if you have not love, you're still nothing. There are many poor people who still look to money to fill them. Witness the queues for the lottery tickets, which I still find amazing. I saw a picture of a queue. There's a lottery ticket on sale in the U.S. this week for $1 billion dollars. Now, and, and I mean, $1 million, $10 million, $1 billion, what difference does it make? But there were people queuing for miles just round things. And I, I just, I was just dumbfounded by it. And then I heard Al Mohler, the Baptist preacher, say this, which I thought was very good. He says, uh, a lottery is a government tax on the stupid. Uh, you have more chances of being hit by lightning four times in the same spot than you have of winning that particular lottery ticket. I mean, it's, it's, and it's insane, but people think, oh, this will change my life. No, you'll just lose some money. Um, but that, there are people who do that. People, you can, you can still be in physical poverty and not be poor in spirit. So what is this poor in spirit? Well, let me keep going on. Actually, let me say a little bit more about what it's not. It's not, being shy and weak and lacking in courage or nervous. You could, you could have all of those characteristics. That doesn't mean that you are poor in spirit. It's not fake humility. I, I don't know if people read Dickens nowadays, but most people will know this reference. Uriah Heep, you know, oh, I'm ever so humble, ever so humble. Um, I've met religious people like that. Oh, I'm such a humble person. 
you do realize that the minute you start boasting about your humility, you've kind of negated the whole thing. But there are people who, who, who do that. Oh I'm, oh, I'm just a worm of the dust. Oh, just how poor I am. That's not being poor in spirit. And being poor in spirit is not, let's say you're somebody who does have an outgoing personality where you say, well, I'm going to be poor in spirit. I'm going to just squash that. I'm, you've got a loud voice. I'm going to be quiet because that's poor in spirit. It doesn't mean that either. The Psalms give us an idea. The afflicted one, this poor man cried. And he cried to the Lord. And why did he cry to the Lord? He cried to the Lord because he was in trouble and he was unable to save himself. Particularly the Psalms and particularly Isaiah use this expression of the afflicted one or the poor and needy. And it's not just referring to physical poverty, though that is often included in it. But it's just referring to this beaten downness and this, this almost desperation that we just see nowhere to go. We have no answer to the situation. People with a contrite and a humble spirit. Now here, the key thing then is what is our attitude to ourselves? It's the very opposite of what our world says. Our world says you need to have self-reliance, self-confidence. You need to be yourself. You need to express yourself. You need to believe in yourself. Now, I must admit, I've never ever found believing in myself a particularly attractive proposition. I'm not even sure what that means. Does it mean I can fly? Does it mean I can touch the sky? No, it doesn't. What does it mean? Believe in yourself. I can be anything I want to be. No, I can't. Um, much as I'd like to have three degrees in molecular biology or evolutionary psychology or whatever it was, I'm never, ever, ever going to go there. That's fine. I'm happy with that. But this idea of believe in yourself, you know, I believe I can be just a, a, you know, a fantastic athlete. I believe I can do this. We, um, that, that is the culture in which we live. I, on all the fuss about David Bowie, I read an article this week, which I thought was fascinating, where the, the, the writer said that Bowie was commended for being himself. And he said, well, that's rubbish. Bowie wasn't himself at all. He played a whole load of different characters. He didn't know who he was. And as I said this morning, somebody asked about uh, the quote this morning because they thought it was quite stunning. So since it was, I'll say it again. Um, that Bowie said, he was so lonely. I felt totally, absolutely alone. And I probably was alone because I pretty much had abandoned God. The person who's poor in spirit is not the person who says, I found my inner self, I'm confident, I'm self-reliant, I'm going to get up in the morning, spring out my bed with a smile, and go on to conquer mountains. Isn't it kind of strange that some Christian teaching wants to make you feel like that. It's, it sounds as though that's what it's saying. And Jesus is saying the very opposite. He's saying, no, you're blessed if you're in a situation where you are conscious that you cannot save yourself and that you cannot get out of the trouble that you are in. And you stop and just think about that for a moment because it's such a, a counterintuitive thing that it, you almost... We almost pass over it just far too quickly. Another aspect of this is 
Someone who's poor in spirit is somebody who's acutely conscious of their own sin. Romans 7.24, Paul says, What a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body of death. The song we sing, we're going to sing it um, at the end, in which one verse is this. And I know it makes, well, maybe it doesn't make everyone feel uncomfortable. For me, sometimes it makes me feel uncomfortable. Just and holy is thy name. I am all unrighteousness. Vile and full of sin I am. Thou art full of truth and grace. If I tweeted you, you vile person, you wouldn't be very impressed. And if I came to speak to you at the door and said, you know, you're vile, and you're just vile, it's, it seems such a horrible term. But this is not talking about saying to other people, it's us being aware ourselves. And I think the hymn writer was poor in spirit because they recognized what was wrong. Thou art full of truth and grace. So here's a paradox. If you are genuinely sitting here feeling conscious of your own weakness and of your own lostness and of your own sin, Jesus is saying you're blessed. On the other hand, if even hearing those words, you just go, you're quite smart because human beings are smart and we can, we can play the game. So we say, yes, yes, yes I'm a sinner. I, I know I'm a sinner, but isn't it wonderful? Grace has forgiven me and, and so on. And you just, now let me get on. I, I need to feel good about this. I need to feel, and it, it's just this, Jesus is trying to tell us, and he is telling us, that our blessedness begins when we empty ourselves of our vain pride and our self-defense and our self-justification and our self-reliance. How do we get this? Not by beating yourself up and not by somebody coming and, if you like, verbally beating you up and accusing you. Not by looking at each other but simply by looking at God. Martin Lloyd-Jones says of this, uh, if one feels anything in the presence of God save an utter poverty of spirit, it ultimately means that you have never faced him. To stand before another human being who plays the same game as you do, you can do that. To stand before God who is holy and pure and righteous and good, so much so that he cannot even look upon evil, it means that we who have evil within us cannot even look upon him. Isaiah 66 says this, Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. This is the one I esteem, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my words. Isaiah 57, 15, for this is what the high and lofty one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. It's not a pleasant experience to be conscious of your own sin. 
When you pray, Lord, show me your sin, be aware, it's a very dan- show me my sin, it, be aware that it, that is a very dangerous prayer. It's not a pleasant experience when God takes away every prop in your life and every idol in your life and makes you conscious of how weak and how empty you are. It is not a pleasant experience. But it is a necessary one in order that God who lives in a high and holy place will come and dwell amongst his people. The rich tend to compromise more with the surrounding heathenism because they have more to lose. Um, In the 17th and 18th century in Scotland, there was a, a term which became a term of abuse. People in churches like to consider themselves to be moderate and to be called an enthusiast. That was like, you know, some wild-eyed, you know, eyes popping out, manic type person. And I think that in our culture today, we like, and even in the church, there is a temptation because we're afraid of fanaticism, because we're afraid, afraid of extremism and so on, but there is a temptation to tone down everything that the word of God says and to try and get it to fit in with the culture because otherwise we reckon rightly that it's going to be very uncomfortable for us and for other people. But holiness cannot fit in with a decadent and corrupt culture. The closer you are to Christ, it is more likely that you will experience loss and trouble in this world. That's why there can be, I think, one of the reasons I think there is so much compromise. We are scared of being empty. We don't accept the promise that God gives that he will fill us. Another way of putting this is um, what Calvin talks about, what we rely on. He only, says Calvin, who is reduced to nothing in himself and relies on the mercy of God is poor in spirit. So you go from here and you say, that's great. I love, you know, I love going to St. Pete's. I love being taught the Bible, love the singing, love the people. That's great. And I'm going to go home. And then you rely on yourself. You're missing the point of what is being said. Now, God is not saying you shouldn't enjoy your family. He's not saying you shouldn't enjoy all the gifts that he gives to you in terms of food and drink and everything else, that you shouldn't enjoy your job and that you shouldn't be glad that you've got some way in which you can provide and serve. But God is saying this, that without him, it is completely empty and a waste. And the truly humble person, the truly poor person who is poor in spirit, not someone who's beat down and oppressed and miserable. It's somebody who just acknowledges that without God, we have and are nothing. I think there's a a self-effacing that comes in this. There's a lot of practical implications from this. But I don't know if this makes sense, but for me, there are no spiritual selfies. You know, you don't go to, hey, look. Look how great I am. Look how wonderful I am. Let me post this uh, and and tell everyone. I I read something 
uh, early in the week, and this guy had, was writing something or a sermon or whatever, and he said, I think this is probably my best sermon ever. I'm going, well, that's not for you to say. You know, that's probably going to be your worst. I, in fact, I didn't even listen to it when I, uh, I heard that. I just thought, no, nah, I don't. That, that's put me completely off. But there's a, a self-effacingness that comes out of this. We preach not ourselves, says Paul, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Now that's, again, not to say that we're colorless or we don't have any personality. It's just simply saying that our aim and motive in life is to glorify Christ and not ourselves. So that's the poor in spirit, someone who's conscious of their sin, someone who's conscious that all the things that we rely on, they cannot give what we need. That were we to have the whole world, we could still lose our soul. Someone who is empty, they're blessed because they are ready to be filled. Look what it says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, let me just explain what that is. The kingdom is given to the poor, not the rich, the weak, not the mighty, to little children, not mighty warriors. That again is so totally counterintuitive. In our culture, in our world, might is right. Might wins. He's got the strongest weapons, wins. We describe the rich as winners and the poor as losers. When someone is weak and struggling and ill, we do not consider them to be blessed. And yet, here, Christ turns that completely on its head. And I think the best commentary on that is Romans 8, verse 31. It's on page 1135. Many of you will know it. It should be engraved on every Christian's heart. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? See, it's interesting. The thing that amazes me about this passage is if this was a modern televangelist, you know what they'd be saying? Hasn't God given us everything? And, you know, Jesus died for us. And so we're going to be free from trouble. We're going to be wealthy. We're not going to experience danger, sword, and famine. But this passage tells us that we get everything with Christ. And nothing could separate us from the love of Christ, even though we experience all these things. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Nothing. You know Jesus and you're lying on your bed tonight and you're in hospital. 
and you don't know if you're going to live and nothing will separate you from the love of Christ. You are better off than the person who is bouncing around in complete health and doesn't know Christ. You lie in bed tonight and you're concerned about how you're going to pay that bill tomorrow or what's going to happen. You're better off than the millionaire who's just thinking about, well, where am I going to invest my next lot? You're better off than the improbable lottery winner. Psalm 23, another great passage of the Bible that lots of people like to say, oh, I love that Psalm. But it doesn't make any sense unless you've got Christ. He leads me beside still waters. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he will be with me. Revelation 21, I, I read this a couple of weeks ago. I just think it's marvelous. The dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. The blessings that come from this is that we are filled. Now, it's just such an incredible thing to get hold of and to grasp. That as God works in our lives and cuts deep and digs out the mess and the sins and the pride and the idols, it is like a surgeon's knife. It can be incredibly painful. But he empties us in order to fill us and to fill us in a way that we, we, we can't even comprehend how great that is. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Back in Revelation, there was a church who thought that they were rich. The church in Laodicea, you say I am rich, I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Happens in churches all the time. We're doing well. You know, God has blessed us. God has encouraged us. Can I, I, can I just say this? I'm so encouraged by what God is doing in this congregation. But I also have a fear because I've seen it so many times. And it's a, a fear that goes something like this. That we become complacent and we think we are rich and we have need of nothing. No. In one sense, we are poor. But it's the very realization of that poverty that gives us such blessing. Because we are coming to God every Lord's Day and we're saying, Lord, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. I've got nothing to give you. And the Lord says, that's what I want. We're not coming and saying, Lord, I thank you that we're not like them, and I thank you that we're not like them, and I thank you that we do this, and I thank you that we do that. We're coming and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the Lord is saying, yes, that's who I want. That's who I want. Now, I know that most of you here know that. 
You know it here. But here, that's harder. And here, we justify and we justify and we justify ourselves. Yes, yes, Lord, I know I should be empty and I know you're going to fill me. But, 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 but. And, and you just have to, you have to recognize there are no buts with God. When God says that we are sinful, when God says that every thought of our hearts is deceitful and desperately wicked, when Paul says, I am the chief of sinners, and he's saying this towards the end of his life after being a Christian, planting churches, doing loads of things, he, he wasn't lying. And God is not lying. He's just telling us that we need to recognize who we are and what we have done, and not so that we can be crushed and beaten by the devil because it's the devil who is the accuser, not God, but so that we can be truly filled. I don't know if you've uh, ever had this experience. I've had it a couple of times in my life. I was quite hungry, and I was traveling, visiting, to visit some people. And uh, I have just a disease in my mind that traveling means you've got to eat. You know, you stop at a railway sta- uh, uh, station, you've got to have a cappuccino. And if you have a cappuccino, you've got to have a muffin. And if you're going to have a muffin, you might as well take some crisps for the water that you're going to have a wee bit for, you know, that kind of thing. And you're on a train, and the trolley comes past, and so on. And I was uh, traveling to visit somebody once, and I... Uh, I was really hungry. And I thought, they're probably going to have food for us, but maybe they're not. It's kind of late at night. So I stopped. We were passing a well-known chipper. And I thought, ah, oh, come on. Why not? So in steak, pie, and chips, brown sauce, uh, and so on. Just great. Just oh, fantastic. I felt satisfied and good until I got to the home that I was visiting. And as I went up the stairs, I smelt at midnight frying bacon and black pudding and egg and everything else and the poor woman not the poor woman she was a wonderful woman had waited up for us and cooked us a fantastic feast and I could not enjoy it I mean I had to try uh, but I, I was just I was already full I couldn't enjoy it I was full well we are like that with God Oh, I got nothing out of that service. Oh, I got nothing out of reading the Bible. I got nothing out of prayer. I got nothing out of this. I got, you know why? Because you're full. Your life's filled with junk. There's no room for God. There's no room for Jesus. But because Jesus is merciful and kind, he will remove a lot of that junk and it will be painful. But then you will be blessed. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. It's interesting that um, the earlier church that he addresses in Smyrna, he says the opposite. I know your affliction and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know you're being beat up. I know you're having a hard time. I know things are really difficult. I know you're not living your best life now, this great victory life that every Christian snake salesman sells you. And you're really struggling. But you are rich. You are rich. It is... 
just a paradox. It's just such a strange thing. But it is the foundation. I think it's the foundation of the happy Christian life. And it's so paradoxical. If you want to be happy, be poor in spirit. Now, where does that leave us all? I think, for me, it leaves me conscious of a certain element of self-reliance and pride and maybe fear. Uh, Fear in the sense of, this is the word of God, and I do tremble at it. And I think, Lord, I'd like the poverty in spirit. Could, Could we do it without the pain? And I think often the answer is yes. God doesn't delight to inflict pain upon his people. When he disciplines us, it's only because he does it out of love. And as I said back earlier, the key to being poor in spirit is not to be so self-absorbed, but just to look at God, to look at Christ, to look at his holiness. And that's how you can sing, just and holy is thy name. Then you say, I am all in righteousness. Because in comparison with God, that is true. In comparison with others, that's not true. Thou art full of truth and grace. I'm not. In comparison with that, I'm vile and full of sin. And as Jesus says, paradoxically, you get that. You've actually got the gospel. You've got what it's about. You are far worse than you ever imagined you could be. And you are far more loved than you could ever hope for. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Encourage us through it. May we understand it rightly. May it speak to our hearts. May it clear our minds. And Lord, grant that we would be those who are poor in spirit. Maybe we are confused. Maybe we are hurt. Maybe we feel that we are running on empty. And yet, ours is the kingdom of heaven. And for those of us who are proud, for those of us who are arrogant, for those of us who have filled ourselves with spiritual junk food, Lord, clear it away. Cleanse us. Renew us. We ask it in your name. Amen. Let's finish. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.